Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Everybody I talk with is thinking about the unknown, and that comes in the form of change and uncertainty and chaos and the complexity of the problems that we have to solve. solve. I would also say the complexity of the solutions we need to provide for customers as well. Everything is seeming to be in quite a state of unknown and unknowable. But that's our focus today. And what I want to talk about is, so what can we do, or maybe I should say, what else can we do to learn to live with all of these sets of unknowns? My guest today is Stephen D'Souza. Stephen is currently Head of Executive Development for Philip Morris International. He's an executive advisor, an educator, a coach, and a speaker, and he's also a best-selling author of a number of books, including Brilliant Networking, for one, or two, Not Knowing, The Art of Turning Uncertainty into Opportunity, which won the Chartered Management Institute's Management Book of the Year, and then a more recent one called Not Doing, which is a book about sustainable leadership. I've only listed three. There are more. He's consulted and coached from graduate to board level with a range of firms such as Amex, Barclays, BT, Credit Suisse, Eurostar, Facebook, Financial Times, Goldman Sachs, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and the United Nations. Not too surprisingly, Stephen has been named in the Thinker's 50 radar for people who are most likely to change the future of management practice. And he's been named by HR Magazine as one of the top 30 influential thinkers in HR globally. So with that, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's a pleasure to be here on the show and to be speaking to your listeners. I'm delighted to have you. You know, you have, I know you have, and everybody else now will know, is that you have a very full day job working at Philip Morris International, and you've created time to write several, not just one or two, several books recently. I don't know how you do it, but the one I'm most intrigued by is this one about the unknown. So why does this topic about the unknown matter so much to you? Yeah, I think it was a, a personal book, uh, one and very much uh, a really relieving my own symptoms or my own struggle with the unknown. So I remember I trained as a psychotherapist and my therapist at one point said to me, Stephen, you seem to always make polarizing decisions. Should I do this or should I do that? And it would always tie me up in a knot. And I was curious about that and I wondered, why is it that I always react to the unknown in a very tight and a very frustrated way? So one day I was, I'd finished a previous book, the one on networking that you mentioned, and mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, I would like to write something that would have an impact for people and the kinds of issues that they're struggling with, but I don't know what to write about. And then it hit me. It was this not knowing that was exactly what I was experiencing that I needed to write about. And not knowing for me wasn't the same as uncertainty. You can go online and you can find many books about managing uncertainty. But uncertainty is only one feeling or response to the unknown, but it's not the only one. To give you a simple example for listeners, imagine you have children 
at Christmas or Eid or festival, they've got presents and they're wrapped. Now, would the children feel uncertain about what was in the in the presents under the wrapping paper? Certainly not. They would feel curious, full of wonder, excitement, possibility. So I became curious myself. What is it that would allow us, enable us, to look at the unknown? Not from a place of uncertainty, but rather from a space of opportunity. And that's what led me to write the book. So looking at the unknown from a state of opportunity, not from a state of uncertainty. It's interesting. I want to, before I go forward with that one, I have to go backwards on something you said that really intrigues me. You said that uncertainty, feeling uncertainty, is one feeling we can have about being faced with the unknown. Curiosity is another one, and the same kind of curiosity we feel about facing an unknown present in a box that we can't see. Are there other feelings we have when we look at the unknown? Yeah, there's a a range of uh, feelings. What I like to contextualize it is that we often come across these feelings when we reach what I call the edge. And that means the edge of our expertise, which is often a frequent feeling in the, the world of today that you described as complex and buka, where we're constantly being challenged uh, and put into the space that's beyond our expertise. So one of the issues is how do we relate to our own expertise, particularly when it's challenged, but what is our response when we're at the edge? So in the book, Not Knowing, uh, Diana Renner, who's my co-author, and I, we use the metaphor of Finisterre. And Finisterre, for listeners who may not be familiar, is a coastal town on the edge of Spain. And it forms part of the end route of an ancient pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago, where through hundreds of years, people used to walk these 900 kilometers to Santiago to Compostela, uh, the uh, burial place of St. James, and walk another three days to this end, uh, this coastal town. And Finisterre, in the Latin, literally means the end of the earth. And why they named that there was because sailors who went off into the ocean didn't return. That place was a place of almost like uh, where you're at the edge, you're not sure what's beyond it. And they were so terrified that the ancient map makers Mariners through serpents and through dragons in the in the water, because that's what it could feel like when we're at the edge and when we're in the unknown. But it's not the only response to the edge. So there are six main responses that uh, or feelings or behaviours that like to characterise when when listeners and maybe you can recognise yourselves in some of these. That how we tend to respond at the edge. So the most common one is control. We tend to take back control, or we try to exert control. That might be introducing more process, it might be by micromanaging, it might be by taking back something. So to give you an example, I was uh, buying a home in London, and I needed to complete my purchase and prevented to sign an agreement on a particular day, but it wasn't happening, and I was becoming very tense. So I said to the estate agent, unless they're able to complete on this date, I'm going to withdraw from the purchase. And the state agent said to me, Stephen, could you remain a little longer in the uncertainty, in this feeling of not knowing? It's the first time I've received stage advice from an estate agent, but I took it. I remained a little longer and completed that purchase. But the point here is that control is often one of the ways. The other way is that we can tend to be full of passivity, resignation, and defeat. 
So, for example, nothing will change here. It's going to be the same as it always was. Maybe a sense of apathy. A very common response at the edge is also what I like to call paralysis by analysis. So this is when we try to do the spreadsheets, we get all the data in organizations, we hire in the consultants that's called McKinsey in, but by the time they've done and produced the report, perhaps the situation has changed. Three other common responses very quickly you wonder are what do we call catastrophic thinking, thinking it's the worst case scenario that is in, in the wrapper or behind the thing. So this is everything will go wrong. If I lose, uh, leave this job to take on another opportunity, I won't succeed. It's the worst case scenario. The other mm-hmm. one is the rush to action, what I like to call the 30-second rush to action. Let's do something, anything, and do it quickly, all in order to avoid remaining with the unknown. And the last one is just resistance, procrastination, maybe putting off, looking at something, avoiding facing the unknown, and the many myriad ways that we tend to resist. So just to wrap up then, uncertainty is one feeling, but we have many responses when we come to the edge. And I'd like to propose that we don't come to one edge, but that we come to many edges, and that we tend to have a default response that we particularly go to as a habitual response to the unknown. And what's useful for listeners is to ask themselves, what is my habitual response when I face the unknown? And does my organization have a particular response when it faces the unknown? Mm. I like that one. And what's my organization? So you can also sort see it. What's the team I'm working with? What's their habitual response? How are they reacting to the unknown? So I'm intrigued with this whole um, notion that you started with is that there's an unknown out there. And it reaches the edge of our knowledge, the edge of our expertise, and it's genuinely unknown. And we all then have a reaction to that, to being at that edge. And one possible reaction could be a lot of anxiety, and therefore I have to do something. Another plausible reaction is I could be curious. Oh, my goodness, what is this going to mean? Where is this going to go? And another reaction is I could be actually excited about the possibilities that might get opened up. So I have a range of plausible reactions but that typically, as human beings, we have a default to one of six responses. Either we try to control or take back control. Two, we become passive or apathetic. Three, we get do a whole bunch of analysis, paralysis by analysis. Four, we go into catastrophic thinking, disasters that will come. Five, we try to do anything just to stop feeling so uncertain or unknown or dealing with the unknown. And six is we procrastinate or resist. But that one of those becomes our habitual responses. That's what we go to and what our organization goes to. Yeah, so, I think that's a fair summary, uh, Wanda. And I, I would add to that, just for more contextualization, none of these are pathology. All of them uh, are useful. And all of them have benefits as well as costs. So, for example, if I have catastrophic thinking... I'm generally prepared for the worst-case scenario. You know, I've done all the thinking, I've made the plan. But the, so that's the positive. The cost is an enormous amount of stress for something that may not happen. So mm-hmm. all of them are useful. All of them serve our purpose, but all of them come at cost. So the object of uh, the working with your own resistance, and it may be none of these I've named. You may have your own. But what is the benefit and how does it cost you? And bringing more awareness will allow more freedom 
in relationship to the unknown. And is there a way of telling which one is the right one in any other circum in any circumstances, or is it just that we have a default and that we just need to be aware of the default? Yeah, I think it's the latter. But also, if you're a manager, for example, you might ask your team for feedback, and they might be willing to give it to you. So under stress, look, Stephen, you tend to resort to micromanaging. This isn't necessarily the most useful thing. Perhaps you could and advocate another point of view, another way of dealing with that. Maybe delegation, maybe learning to let go of control and to trust more. I think feedback from those around us may be a good source of the impact of our choices uh, that we tend to make and thinking about them in that way. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated, as you know, Stephen, and as everybody who listens to me regularly know, with how much we are driven by expertise. And for people who've not tuned in to my hearing this, just to give you the real simple summary is we train and groom and develop people in our organizations to be experts and we reward them for being experts, to know, to control risk, to control quality, to do all good things, to solve problems in effect. Um, And our identity, I think, gets wrapped up with being the expert who knows. I think that comes with a whole bunch of consequences. But I think this expert, this, this thing that I am this expert, and therefore I am supposed to have the answer, becomes such a big factor that, as you say, when you get to the edge of our expertise, people start to have all sorts of reactions, and do you see the same? Is it the unknown that's when it's at the edge of our expertise, or is it something else that's driving all these reactions to the unknown? Yes, I think uh, it's a great link, one uh, to expertise, and I think that's really one of the root symptoms of our inability to be with the unknown and how our society tends to privilege knowledge over curiosity, over experiment, over wondering, over learning. So this is uh, a, di- a direct link. So one of the examples that I like to give is from the world of, of medicine, for example. Uh, Norina Hertz, in her book, uh, uh, Mind Wide Open, from Cambridge, she argues that one in six medical diagnosis is might be inaccurate, and it costs between 17 and 29 billion U.S. dollars every year. That's an estimate by the Institute of Med- Medicine on unnecessary um, patient treatment. So mm-hmm. there's a huge cost relying on expertise and thinking it's always infallible when it, it isn't. So I remember when Friedrich Hayek accepted the Nobel Prize Economics, entitled his uh, acceptance speech against the pretense of knowledge, warning against economic omniscience and this idea that we can have all the answers. And Noreen points to brain scans and that when we listen to experts, it's as if they're independent decision-making part of our brain literally switches off and we just receive what they say rather than questioning. Uh, Nicholas Taleb, the author of The Black Swan, he said it a bit more colorfully, he said, it's never a good idea to take advice from somebody wearing a tie. So he said <laughs> it tongue-in-cheek, but the idea is how do we democratize expertise? How do we learn to question our sources? So the uh, more a contemporary example is the global financial crisis. Uh, in London, the Queen visited the London School of Economics in 2008 and in November. And she asked them, if all of you are experts, if all of you are uh, very clever 
in your field that they had regulated their academics, business leaders. How could nobody predict the crisis and prevent this in advance? So the British Academy decided the following year, in uh, May 2009, June, sorry, June 2009, to con- convene experts and to answer the tweet. And they wrote a letter in reply. And it did say, actually, we did know a crisis was coming. There were reports on financial stability and possible shocks. The problem was the, ability, the blind faith in the ability of a few that understood what they were doing. And that wasn't questioned. Greenspan's autobiography, he said, he's never seen a big example of wishful thinking combined with hubris. So the point mm-hmm. is, we tend to when we're, we tend not to question expertise, or we tend to put too much emphasis when it's valuable and it's necessary, but it's not always sufficient. So yeah, Dunning Kruger, the, the psychologist who won the Nobel Prize, it showed that when we have no experience, our confidence tends to be very high. When we gain some experience, we tend to have a much more realistic level, and then we develop a medium when we've got some expertise. But the problem isn't, isn't confidence. The problem is overconfidence. And so what I'm advocating is recognizing in the complex world that we're living, it's impossible for any leader, no matter how learned, to have all the answers. I'll give you an example again from the game of chess, if any of your listeners play. As of uh, a few years ago, there were only 1,441 chess grandmasters in the world. But they tend to think ahead. Only 15 moves. That's it. And that's in a game with fixed and predictable rules. Now imagine markets where there's millions of actors who are acting rationally and irrationally, predictably and unpredictably. It's impossible that anybody has all the answers. Yet the one phrase that we tend to be afraid of, particularly if we're experts, is I don't know. So when I'm speaking about I don't know, I'm asking us to reframe it. From I don't know, we tend to picture people in the dark. But I'd like to advocate that being able to say that I don't know allows us to take responsibility, avoid hubris, and overconfidence. And it can be a place of learning. So using that light and dark metaphor, day and night are both 12 hours, yet we tend to privilege the light. But all change, all transformation, generally happens in the dark. Think about the seed in the earth, the baby in the womb. Just when we think that nothing is happening, that often is the place that germinates growth and germinates transformation. Inviting this I don't know space as a space of potential transformation and opportunity beyond the conventional of what you already know. Yeah, but for a lot of people, Stephen, just thinking about that space of transformation creates a whole other set of unknowns. And then we're right back into the loop again. I mean, some people will enjoy the curiosity and the wonder of what could be created in that moment. And some actually get quite fearful of what could be created in that moment. And isn't that the ultimate thing? Isn't it our fears that drive um, all of these habitual responses? Yes, I think um, we've both learned in management theory now. There's a lot about self-regulation and the ability to to be with our feelings and to be able to regulate them rather than be at the vicissitudes of our feelings. 
But you're absolutely right uh, when there's this studies, I think, the scarf model by David Watt has shown that perceived uh, threat or even the fear of the unknown is as painful to us as physical threat um, to, the, to our system. So absolutely, um, one, of the, one of the reasons where I started exploring this, perhaps in the second half of the show, where I'll share more strategies around is that it is painful and it is difficult for most of us and that we need to learn to relate to, to it uh, in a different way. Okay. So, Steph, I know we're going to come to the details of what you do about this, but, it, you know, kind of a bit of a recap. The step one is really understanding that we have a range of feelings when we reach the edge of our knowledge, the edge of the expertise, if you will. And that throws up a series of fears for some of us. Um, and especially fears about my role and my responsibilities, my ability to transform, my ability to predict, my ability, a whole bunch of things. And we have out of that a series of habitual responses, which we've talked about, sort of controlling, responding passively, um, paralysis by analysis, and so forth. And the secret then is to understand what is it that you habitually go to when you're faced with an unknown and what is it that your team or your organization habitually does when it is facing the unknown? And then from there, begin to, using that self-awareness, to begin to take some different kind of actions. Yeah, I think that's it. We become more choiceful only when we have awareness. So I think this is, uh, this is a first port of call. And then it may be asking, what would be an appropriate response here? or rather than the default response. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, getting out of that emotional reaction space as well, out of the response space from um, kind of emotional thinking as opposed to cognitive logical thinking, and then being able to think more logically about, so what do we do about it? I want to put one more point on this one before we take a break, which is one I have been thinking a great deal about. I think it's going to be my theme for 2020. But it's this notion of collaboration. You know, every company everywhere is talking about collaboration. And I believe it's the only way we're going to solve some of the bigger problems that we have to solve as organizations and as societies and cities. And collaboration means that I need to take a group of people who have a very different point of view and very different expertise together to debate an open space, an open problem that no one person actually has the solution to or we would have already fixed it. And what it strikes me in in your work about all of this is what I'm asking people to do in that collaborative moment is to face the unknown, to go to the edge of their knowledge, as you describe the edge of their expertise, and look over into that problem and say, geez, maybe we don't know. Maybe we know a tiny bit, but we don't know enough. And I think it's that willingness to look at the unknown, to hold the not knowing space that actually allows us to collaborate. Now, does that make sense to you? You disagree with me. No, I absolutely agree with you, Wanda, here. I think part of it is recognizing our own own assumption and our own conditioning based on our education. If I've been trained, for example, as an engineer, I'll see everything as a problem to be solved. Whereas if I'm trained from an artistic point of view, maybe I'll, it's not a problem to be solved, but here I'm looking at something, maybe my, my more is how do I create beauty from it? How do I create form? How could I have function? 
that our perspective always influences the way that we might tackle a problem. But the research clearly shows that the more diverse perspectives that we're able to bring and being able to suspend our own in order to listen, in order to take in something that's different than what I came in with is the values. So when I'm working with groups and they're, they're working on listening or sharing things, I don't ask them to listen for what they already know, but what is new that I can learn here? What is new that I'm learning here? Not to repeat back what they've heard, but to look for the new. And that openness uh, will allow more generative uh, conversation rather than just uh, what we're doing and staying within the existing paradigm. Right. Right. It is intriguing to me um, constantly as I interact with people and I coach and I train groups and I talk about conversations and I talk about how we work together in teams and all of that. We lead effectively that we know how important it is to be open to the new, to see what's new here and how extraordinarily difficult it is for us to actually do that. And I think you're right. I think it's that space of not knowing, being comfortable with the not knowing. Yeah, I'd go further and challenge people to actively walk towards difference. So I'll give you an example. I often work with groups of executives, and I ask them to, to name the differences in their group. So imagine a team of 20 executives, and they would start with simple things like height, uh, lack of hair or more hair, eye color, then I'd become a bit more challenging, naming things that they don't name, such as skin color, such as belief, introversion, extroversion, etc. And then I challenge them with this question. I want you to slowly and consciously walk towards the person who's most different to you in the room. And as you do so, notice what happens when also somebody walks towards you. The room goes quiet. You can imagine one day, not you can even mm-hmm. hear a pin drop. Because they're asked to go to the unfamiliar. They're asked to walk towards the unknown. So they walk and they make a choice. And then I say to them, how many of you felt uncomfortable with the request? And about 90%, if not 100% of the hands go up. And I ask them, why do you make different to you something negative? Difference does not mean less than. It's an opportunity to learn and to go into a new space that you're not familiar with. So I give them an example. I met my co-author for this book at Harvard at the Kennedy School. There was a class of us, and there were around 60 to 80 students. And every time the professor said something, she would offer a very different perspective that, for me, was enlivening, that maybe could be seen as conflictual, but a very, very unique point of view and very thoughtful. At the break, I went up to her and said, look, I'm writing a book about not knowing. Will you join me and become my co-author? And she said, Stephen, I've not written a book before. I said, I don't mind. You think differently than anybody in this room. Your insights are powerful. Your experience, she was very different to me. She lived in Australia. She was a refugee from Romania, a mother of two children, different uh, professional background. But the beauty of it was benefiting from that different perspective and welcoming and embracing the unknown, not just expecting it to come towards us. And it does come towards us, but how could we move towards it? So I'm certain, you know, without the partnership with Vienna, 
I wouldn't be able to accomplish the Not Knowing book. I put it personally down to her brilliance. But the idea here is how in our everyday work lives, in our everyday lives, how can we walk towards difference and towards okay. the unknown? If it, and knowing that it's not the place that we tend to go towards, but the benefits yeah. are there for both us individuals and for the organization. I like that, Stephen. How well said. How do we walk towards the unknown? And I think in walking towards the unknown, how do we get comfortable with not knowing? And I think that's interesting, the unknown and then the willingness to not know, which is a perfect place for us to take a break. So my guest today is Stephen D'Souza. He's currently head of executive development for Philip Morris International. He's the author of a number of books, including the one we've been talking about, Not Knowing, The Art of Turning Uncertainty into Opportunity. When we come back from the break, what I want to focus on are what are the capabilities that make this not knowing easier to live with. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Stephen D'Souza, and the book we have been talking about is Not Knowing, The Art of Turning Uncertainty into Opportunity. I think, Stephen, the thing that has just really captured my attention is a subtle communication language difference that just has has hit me as really important. So we all talk about the unknown. We talk about VUCA. We talk about uncertainty. We talk about change. We talk about chaos. We talk about complexity. Talk about all those things as if that stuff was out there in the world. And it is. Don't get me wrong. It is out there in the world. 
And then this notion that we have a reaction to it and then we try to do something to prevent feeling worried, anxious, afraid, um, and all of those are the six behaviors that you've already identified. But this notion that instead of doing all those things, we try to be in a state of not knowing, of walking to the unknown and being okay with not knowing, that strikes me as really an interesting human moment. So you've thought about this and have talked about it. I want to talk for a minute about the capabilities uh, that it takes to be able to not know. So can you describe yeah, what we do with what I want to know? Yeah, that's a great uh, segue, I think, into how, how can listeners actually practice and being in a different relationship to the unknown. So one of the things that uh, Dana discovered was that it's not about adding a new set of skills or toolkit, but rather it's more around unlearning. And we took a beautiful phrase. It's from the poet uh, Keith. Uh, he wrote a letter to his brothers, George and Thomas, and in it he described something called the negative capability. And the negative capabilities are, he described it as like this, that it's the ability to be with mystery, uncertainty, and doubt without irritable reaching after fact and reason. So what we discovered was that there were, in our interviews, and we interviewed a range of people who didn't see the unknown as uncertainty, but rather that as that space of opportunity. They were from adventurers, scientists, entrepreneurs, artists, all who related to that space in a very creative and a very powerful way. And what we discovered was they had four main practices. We like to call them the principles of how we can develop a new relationship with the unknown. So I'm very happy to share with listeners what these were and how they may think about applying them uh, to help them in that relationship. So the first one, and maybe we can have a conversation around this, is the idea of empty your cup. And I guess this comes back to the freshness that you were talking to and that liveness when meeting the unfamiliar. The empty your cup, uh, I'd like to tell a story that when I was training as a, as a therapist, I had a client who was severely depressed for several years. And I was still in training. I thought what I needed to do was to read all about depression. Uh, read the DSM-5, read all the journal articles, and my supervisor stopped me. He said, Stephen, what makes you think that you'll make a difference for this person with your knowledge? And I described to him the incompetency and vulnerability I felt as a beginner, and that was my default, to seek more knowledge and more information. And he quoted for me a very beautiful quote from Suzuki Senroshi, and it says, in the beginner's mind are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And that gave me the confidence not to see my innocence in this particular field as something negative, but to trust and to explore alternative ways rather than just seeking more information. And it's just that spirit of beginner's mind and empty on cup, I think, is the first negative capability that's useful in dealing with the unknown. So to give you uh, business examples, whether it's mobile banking or microfinance, they all grew when there was no existing past dependencies. And they were able to spread because there wasn't already an ingrained way of doing something. 
So Muhammad Yunus, when he accepted the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, uh, the founder of the Grameen Microbank, he said, not knowing something can be a blessing sometimes because you're open and you can do things in your way without worrying about rules and procedures. Every time I needed a rule or procedure, I had to look at what the conventional banks do. And once I learned what they did, I did the opposite. Conventional banks go to the rich. I go to the poor. Said. Conventional banks go to the men. I go to the women. Conventional banks are owned by rich people. Grameen Bank is owned by poor people. I could try because I didn't know anything. And studies done uh, on creativity, for example, at Stanford, where they give children a robot. They're just told these are the, the, all the functions. Or when they're not told what the functions are, they're able to create much more, much more possibility than when we limit our knowledge by what we already know. Uh, another specific business example, I remember a, uh, a senior executive in the bank hiring uh, for advice around the merger and acquisition. The consultant that came to her said, look, I can help you. I've seen this 99 times before. I know what to do. She fired him with I'm not going to go further with this. How can you have the arrogance, even if you've seen it 99 times, think that you know for sure what the next time will be? It's how do we keep this openness and this spirit of uh, inquiry in what we do? And I like to say a practical way that people can do this is, one, ask more questions and ask them for longer. So we tend at, at school to ask questions. Yeah, if a child asks more than a few questions, they're thought to be disruptive now and give them medication. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this a sign of creativity, of, of uh, curiosity? Asking more and better questions and encouraging questions, not just once, but maybe a few times, go deeper and understand more. Stay in that willingness and that openness. And the other way is I do a very simple exercise I give executives two pieces of paper. One, imagine, is the blue paper. And I ask them to think about a complex challenge they're currently facing and write down all the things that they know on the blue piece of paper. I give them a minute, and they're writing curiously about all the known facts. I say, fold it in half, fold it in half again, and put it into your pocket. Then they take out a yellow piece of paper, and this time, the same amount of time, but to write down all the questions they have the curiosities they have about the same challenge. And this time, after the minute, they fold it in half, half again, and they put it into their pocket. I invite them then, take out those two pieces of paper, holding the blue in their right hand, the yellow in their left hand, and metaphorically, which feels the heavier, which feels the lighter, which was the longer, the more difficult to write, which was the shorter. And more importantly, I get them to reflect on this. What I'm asking them to do was not to throw away what they knew, but I asked them, in fact, to keep it on their pocket. So we're not a tabula rasa. Our experience is important. Expertise is important. But what I asked them to do is invite them to hold open their other hand and to see whether they had the same openness and the same curiosity to balance their knowing. And that's really the power here. How is it that we can hold what we know, but hold it lightly and make space for what we don't know? And there's the value here. So we can become attached to either, but there's always a mixture of the two. 
if we can give it attention, if we can give it focus. I always ask them to think about how can you experience being a beginner again in something that you don't have expertise on a new domain, and how might you apply that um, to complex challenges you face? This resonates on so many ways. Um, I've heard a number of CEOs, particularly as I was writing my book about You Can't Know It All, and talking to CEOs about how you take over and lead an organization or part of the organization when you don't know anything about that area. So how do you lead a fundamentally engineering-driven product area when you're not an engineer and not a technical person at all? And what they always say is not unlike what you've just described, but they would always say you have to ask a lot of dumb questions, followed by, and frequently those dumb questions are not all that dumb when it turns out. So what what they're doing, in effect, is coming to something that they don't know with the curiosity of a child, if you will, about how does it work? What is this about? Why is it done that way? What is the core principle here? And that newness, if you will, that fresh questioning breaks open thinking for all sorts of people, including the engineers and the technical experts. So it's that same principle. Uh One of the the building on that, the second principle is close your eyes in order to see, by the artist Paul Gagon. And closing our eyes in order to see is sounds contradictory. But the idea behind this is that we tend to be over-reliant on certain sources of data and certain sources of information. So, for example, when I face a complex challenge at work, so I always speak to the same individual. So I always re- uh, read the similar report. How different am I able to get different perspectives, opening up different avenues and sources to hear more points of view. So I'd like to contrast it with what you're saying. It's important to ask the right questions. And let's say we can use the analogy of speaking, but equally important is to develop the capacity of what the conductor Itai Taugam, who wrote The Ignorant Maestro, he calls keynote listening. How can we listen more deeply that will allow a new possibility to emerge? and enable us to find answers in the unknown. The practical way is avoiding interruption. The study done at the University of Rochester, the medical school, the doctors interrupt their patients after only 23 seconds with the diagnosis. And if they wait just six more seconds, the patient may reveal something significant that would change the diagnosis. How might listeners just wait a little longer before coming in with a possible uh, solution. Another way that we can work with this idea about closing our eyes and is the initiative uh, one of our colleagues were um, familiar with, um, David, um, he wrote a, a book called Street Wisdom. Uh, have mm-hmm. you come across this? Yes, I have. And uh, yeah, the idea here is very much that the answers are everywhere in your environment that you don't need to go somewhere, uh, the Camino, the Santiago, for example, when you can literally go to your high street. But the idea here is it tunes executives up to be more aware and alert uh, to their environment so that they can hear the answers. So a specific example is working with a financial publishing company. They were thinking about what is it that they need to do to revamp a magazine. And they would go for short walks, which I call tuning up walks. So, for example, they would walk slowly rather than at a rapid pace. 
or they would walk noticing patterns. And then for the longer walk, they would hold a question in their mind. And they would say, what is the environment? What are the clues are they getting from the environment that may give nudges as to potential answers to solve the problem? It was a short mm-hmm. walk, but really interesting data came back from the unfamiliar. And they might be let's, talking to customers that think about advertising in a very new way, or things they observed in ways product was placed on shelves or from alternative uh, consumer products. So here is the idea, how can I be more open? How can I broaden my aperture and uh, see things that perhaps are unfamiliar uh, in the unknown? So what familiar sources could you close? How could you enable new possible ways of seeing to emerge? Who can you listen to more deeply? I think this is uh, some of the critical uh, capabilities in order to help us in the unknown. It's an interesting idea. Close your eyes in order to see. Um, and what you're really saying is to stop relying on your same sources of information and look for completely different sources of input. It reminds me, and you took two very good examples about listening a little longer, listening a little more deeply, listening to different people, holding a different question in your mind when you're thinking. It reminds me of a show I recently did with Amy Stendler where she has this um, program uh, called Seeing through your own lens and she has people come to the program with a problem they're trying to solve or a thing that they're worrying about and she sends them out to go take photographs. They go on a photographic walk, not necessarily about the problem, just an absolute freeing photographic walk out anywhere and she orchestrates where it is they're going to go and they're supposed to take photographs that capture their attention. No further instruction, well, a little more instructions, but not a lot more than that. And it's just that going out and seeing what else you see. And then when they come together, it's understanding the pictures or the ideas that captured your attention in that photographic walk actually give new insight to the problem that you're facing. And that's another example of how do you close your eyes in order to see. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think the act of walking in itself I think David's new book is called Wonderful. And just for listeners, his full name is David Pearl. David Pearl. Okay. And David Pearl. it's an open source methodology that any organization can use. And they've used it around the world. It's uh, called Speak Wisdom. And to your point, taking photos and is one quick, easy and a convenient way and a, and a serendipitous way to engage and to find connections. I, I love that example, Wonder. Great. All right. So that's two that you've given us. One is empty your cup. So kind of come at this with the freshness of not having any expertise or holding the expertise in one hand and the questions in the other. Second one was this close your eyes in order to see what's the third one we want to do. Yeah, the third is leap into the dark. And by this, uh, you often draw the the picture of Eve Klein. You've probably seen the photograph of Eve uh, falling into a Parisian street. But he's got a smile on his face. And this is the days before Photoshop. And I was curious, why is he smiling? He's smiling because he knew how to fall. And there's this idea that when we're in the unknown, one of the only ways that we can do is take a step. And it doesn't mean to always leap. It's like I use the analogy of a swimming pool. If we're going to a pool, we normally test the water. We might put in a toe. We might dip in a little bit first. And some people choose to dive in. But we all have our different ways of entering. But the point is to enter and to begin. So there's a famous poem by Polinaire. Come to the edge, he said. 
they came, come to the edge, he said. They came, he pushed them, and they flew. And the idea that we can only move forward, sometimes by investing in fully in, into the new. So an example of this is I'm scared of heights as a, as a, from a ch- childhood. And I decided to try to challenge that by doing the trapeze, flying trapeze. And it involves climbing a 40-foot pole. And I decided to do that in Regent's Park in London. And you can imagine I turned up on a bright, sunny day, and everybody there was children around me. And they were excited and full of joy and energy. And I was petrified, I have to say. So I remember <laughs> we started to practice on a low, low wall. So it was practicing in safety. And then the time came to climb the long pole. At the top was a square. And I remember standing there terrified. And I had to hold the, the bar and lean forward. And the point came that if I didn't let go of the, where I was standing, uh, I'd be literally torn. So I bet we all face that choice. What do we do? So I let go and I blew through the air. And at the very top, I, when there was least resistance, I put over my leg and I flew backwards and uh, along the trapeze through the air. And the point that I really got here is when we have the least support, the least stability is our most flexibility for movement. And that applies to organizations as well. It's the point that we think that everything is changing, nothing is stable, that we have the most opportunity. So I remember going through an acquisition in, in an investment bank. I was an employee, and, my, and I was very, very uncertain and anxious. And my mentor said to me, Stephen, this is a great time for you because here nothing is fixed now and everything is open and all opportunities are possible. So it was a powerful reframe for me. But one of the ways that we can do this practically is rather than having one answer, we can test different hypotheses and we can experiment, not in large experiments that may have huge risks, in what I like to call micro-experiments. Uh, there's a, a management thinker uses the expression Trojan mice. You know, they're small enough that you can just release many experiments and see which works without having big unintended consequences as, say, a big change program would have. So these are different ways. The practical examples the company Intuit, which makes the tax software quicken. They wanted to raise the income of rural farmers in India. Rather than coming up with one solution, they had about 13 different experiments from giving them phones, from saying genetically, uh, from seeing whether their price would be on it. But they managed to raise the, uh, the rural fibers income, I think, by 10 or 20%, which was the difference of sending a child to school or not. So the idea is, how could I conceive of multiple hypotheses regarding a challenge I'm facing at work? What are some experiments that I might try but how might I benefit from taking a leap of faith and how might I practice with support? So multiple hypotheses, many experiments, and I love this, many Trojan mice, and then have uh, uh, sort of take the step forward, the leap forward. With some knowledge, but without yeah. full knowledge. Okay, great. Yeah, now, absolutely. how do you... How do you help team? Oh, I guess I better not say that. Give us the fourth one then, the fourth way in which we can get comfortable with not knowing. Yeah, the fourth is just about delighting in the unknown. It's about this idea that when we're going through the unknown, it's difficult and it's always, as you say, um, painful. 
I wonder. So one of the ways that we can do that is increasing our sense of lightness and levity, particularly as managers, and also showing compassion to ourselves and others. We're having a sense of lightness when we're going through difficulty is super important. Imagine a leader who is very tense and very uh, anxious. That's going to be contagious to your team and it's going to be contagious to the organization. So it's not about trivializing them, though. It's recognizing that, I think it's Paul Wojtlavich said, the situation is critical, but it's not serious. How do okay. we develop a sense of perspective, a sense of lightness? And study that. I think there's a good book called The Levity Effect, saying that lightness is a, is a very powerful quality that we need to carry as senior leaders, and particularly important then, uh, to your point, around self-regulation, but also compassion, you know, the empathy. Uh, a lot of work has been done on self-compassion by Christian Nuss, I recommend the leaders. But great organizational examples, I think uh, Cleveland Hospital, if any of your listeners have time, just go into YouTube, type in Cleveland Hospital empathy video. Moving video, it's only five, two, four, five minutes, but it shows the thinking of uh, different clients and from staff, the uh, people who use hospital, and it looks at what's going on in their world. And it opens up, if we only knew what was in another person's world, how much more compassionate we would be, how much more understanding. But it's a powerful, uh, powerful video. That's um, a great way to end this one. And you see why now a little bit of humor or why people being able to say we're not killing people here or anything else that gives a little lightness where it's critical but not serious. I love that. And being able to see with compassion where other people are. Stephen, we're out of time. What a delightful conversation. I just want to hit a highlight here. As I said at the beginning of this segment, the thing for me is about the willingness to not know, which is, and to do that, we want to empty your cup, which means I don't want to give up my expertise completely, but I want to park it and then be open to some curious questions. I want to close my eyes in order to see, meaning to look at it differently, to ask different questions. I want to leap into the dark, which means to take some experiments, some different hypotheses, and I want to delight with the unknown, which is to create a sense of levity. Stephen, fabulous show. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Wanda. Um, it was a pleasure. I'll leave uh, listeners with one quote from my favorite poet, Antonio Machado. He said, Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. So I encourage uh, listeners to walk that path, have more confidence, the ability, hopefully, this has given a few tips in embracing the unknown, but also to know that they're walking this path together with the community Perfect. that you've built and with each other. I'm hoping I'm glad and it's an honor to speak with you on this podcast. Thank you, Wanda. Thanks, Stephen. And with that, join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 